for your patients who are experiencing some sort of like disturbance in the skin barrier, whether it be like acne or rosacea, do you tend to recommend a probiotic or is that not something that you usually regularly recommend? I do recommend a probiotic. I think we still need kind of more research, but I think it's sort of an untapped market. I think, well, people are starting to tap into it, but, but there are a couple of options out there of some probiotics that specifically look at strains that benefit patients with those skin issues with acne. And so, so I would recommend some of those to patients for sure. Welcome to Hashtag Skinthusiast, the podcast, a place for listeners to hear from the experts and soak in tangible tips to get that glow from the inside out. I'm Amy, a skincare educator, practicing dermatology PA, and beauty creator who bridges the gap between you and the industry. Listen in to the industry's top experts on everything from the best way to spot treat a pimple, which skincare ingredients we shouldn't be mixing, to the drugstore finds that are better than luxury price tags. We cover it all. Here, dermatologists, skincare experts, brand founders, and thought leaders will share their tips and tricks for all things beauty, skincare, and wellness. Think of hashtag Skinthusiast like a coffee chat with the beauty gurus whose brains you've always wanted to pick. You won't get this kind of insight anywhere else. Your best skin is coming soon. Today on the podcast, we have Dr. Mamina. She is triple board certified in dermatology, internal medicine, and dermatopathology. Plus, she has her certification in integrative dermatology. She's incredibly bright, and I love her integration of traditional medicine modalities into her modern practice. We chat about hormonal acne, supplements for clear skin, pregnancy skincare, hair thinning, skincare to splurge versus save on, and so much more. So let's get into it. Okay, Dr. Mamina, thank you so, so much for joining us today. I am really excited to chat with you because, first of all, you have a very impressive resume, and I love your videos. I love all of your skincare education, so I cannot wait to get into it. Oh, thank you so much. I'm so happy to be here. I always like to start each episode asking my guests, what is their first and earliest skincare memory that they can remember? Okay, my earliest memory was when I was... I'm pretty sure I was in third grade or it was the summer before third grade and I was in Japan. So we wouldn't spend every summer, but there were a few summers throughout my childhood where we would just spend like six to eight weeks in Japan. And I remember just hanging out with my Japanese grandmother and she was doing her skincare. She actually sold skincare. It was a Japanese brand called Pola. But yeah, so she was really into skincare and that really got me interested. And I just remember you know, the way she applied it, like she also like massaged her face afterwards, like she would pat her face. And I was just very inspired by it. And I was like, oh, I want, it just felt, I didn't even know what the benefits were, but I just thought the experience was really enjoyable and special. Yeah, absolutely. It's such a luxurious kind of self-care practice. And then when it's also tied to someone you love, I can imagine that that just Mm -hmm. like brings even more warmth to it as well. Yeah, definitely. So did you feel like you had an interest in skincare early on or was this something that kind of came about later in your career? I think it came about later, actually. I, you know, I think I was always good about, you know, moisturizing, washing my face. I was, you know, and I was always interested in different products like, oh, like shampoos and their fragrances and different moisturizers and their fragrances. And, you know, I, it was something that, I had interest in, but I didn't like go out of my way to have a collection of any sort. And it wasn't, and even when I went to medical school, I wasn't, you know, interested in doing dermatology. I was more interested in primary care, internal medicine. I was really interested, honestly, in like holistic medicine or integrative medicine, alternative medicine, or incorporating like alternative healing modalities with mainstream conventional medicine. And one of the reasons why I was interested in dermatology is because I just feel like so much that's on the skin is representative of what's going on internally. And when I was going through derm residency, that's when it really reignited or sparked this interest that I have in skincare and just learning the benefits of all these different ingredients. I was like, okay, this is this is awesome. I'm into this. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's a lot of fun. And th- this kind of brings me to one of my points. You have 
a really impressive kind of career path. You're triple board certified in internal med, dermatology, and dermatopathology, right? Yes. Yes. Yeah, that's amazing. And then you're also certified in, in integrative dermatology, which I find so fascinating. That is just, I think, a, a field that is so incredible. It's 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 new for us, right, yeah. in Western medicine. It's new for us, so it's really exciting. And I'd love to kind of touch on your career journey a little bit and then also what it's been like kind of integrating this integrative dermatology into your practice. Yeah, so I was more interested in primary care because I wanted to really practice more holistic or integrative medicine. That interest started when I was young. My mom would incorporate kind of more, I guess, quote, natural remedies into our everyday lives. Like if you were sick, she would avoid like Tylenol at all costs. Like if we had fever, she would, she would create her own concoctions. Like there was this one that I remember it was like warm sake. So instead she would give us alcohol. So it was warm sake <laughs> with like a raw egg that she would dump in it. And we had to like just down it. But then the next day we felt like a million bucks. So I don't know what there was to that, but it was just different things like that. And she would like also massage like different pressure points on our feet because, you know, it's like acupressure is correlated with like different organs throughout the body. So there was always this interest in alternative healing modalities kind of instilled in me throughout my life. Um, but I, and I always was interested in like math and science and I never really knew for sure if I want to go to medical school until later in high school and college, but I was torn between like going to naturopathic medical school versus a conventional allopathic medical school. And I was really struggling with deciding between the two, but I thought that, you know, if I had my medical degree that I would have a lot of different options. If I wanted to practice integrative medicine, I could easily do that with an MD. And so I went that route. And during medical school, when I was doing my third year rotations, I was doing a subspecialty of internal medicine called rheumatology. And that focuses on autoimmune disease. And there's so much overlap with um, autoimmune disease, rheumatology and dermatology. There's a lot of autoimmune skin diseases. And I saw myself being really really kind of drawn to these patients and just had a lot of empathy for their skin issues and just the struggles they were going through with that. And I was like, wait, maybe, maybe I like dermatology. And when I did my dermatology rotation, I realized, yes, dermatology has so many amazing things. You can see both adults and kids because I was also interested in pediatrics. You can do surgery like minor surgery. I, I wasn't interested in like manipulating bowel, like general surgeons. I was like, I was good with like skin surgery. And also there's a lot of pathology and I loved pathology and, you know, dermatology residents, one third of our dermatology board exams is at the microscope, which is all derm path. So we, there was a lot of derma, dermatopathology during derm residency. And then I was also interested in the cosmetic aspect. I understood why people wanted to seek cosmetic treatment. And then I was interested in like the, the rheumatology, like autoimmune skin disease overlap there too. So, so dermatology had everything that I was really interested in. And because I was also interested in the autoimmune stuff, that's why I pursued like the double residency with internal medicine and dermatology with the potential of doing a rheumatology fellowship after that. Um, but my love for PATH was, was also, um, you know, sparked during my derm residency. So that's why I did a dermatopathology fellowship. Um, I can't tell if I'm just like crazy or like really just curious, but I love it. <laughs> it though. was a long journey. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'm sure that it was. And for those who don't know what integrative dermatology is, can you explain a little bit about how maybe some examples of how you incorporate it into your practice now? Yes, definitely. Integrative dermatology integrates both conventional dermatology, so, you know, what we're trained in in traditional dermatology residency, you know, looking at different health conditions and we have like the FDA approved medications or treatments for those. And it integrates that with other forms of medicine. I mean, people say it's alternative medicine, but, you know, they could be mainstream in other cultures, like whether it's like traditional Chinese medicine or Ayurveda or looking at like visual therapy, mind-body medicine, um, homeopathy, and looking at things like your everyday life, your lifestyle, the stress in your life, exercise, sleep, as well as like supplementation. So all these things sort of can potentially complement or be integrated into a treatment plan for a patient. And, you know, how I like to incorporate integrative dermatology in my everyday practice, because I do practice 
conventional medicine. I'm in a conventional medicine practice. Every model, you know, every dermatologist who practices integrative dermatology can look different. But right now, because I'm in a conventional practice, for me, it's mostly conventional dermatology. But when I see patients, I really ask them, okay, like, like what kind of food they eat? What do you eat for breakfast, lunch, dinner? You know, what's the stress level in your life? What's your sleep level like? And I also, you know, try to see what they're how they feel about being on different different prescription medicines because I know a lot of people are concerned about side effects and um, some people are, yeah, just hesitant to be on certain prescription medicines. They want to try other routes. And so um, because, I, you know, I, when I did this integrative dermatology fellowship and even prior to that, I just had such an interest in it. I just learned about other supplements that can be helpful for various skin conditions. So those are things that I will offer to patients. And then I will also guide them, depending on their skin condition, on certain dietary factors that could be contributing to their condition as well. So interesting. And is this something that you do across the board for all your patients? Or do you really try to feel out the ones you think are motivated to make those lifestyle changes? Yes, I definitely feel out the patient. Um, I... Yeah, it's so it's interesting because some patients will come to my practice because they know that that's a field that I'm interested in. But because it is conventional, we we attract all sorts of patients. And some people are like, just give me the drugs. I want this gone now. Um, and I think that's great. So I try to be amenable to what the patient's needs and desires are. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a little bit of, of the art of medicine too, is kind of understanding yes. what that patient is motivated to change and what's going to be the best course of action. Because as we know, if they don't act, if they leave the office with all these recommendations that aren't feasible for them, then they're going to be unhappy with the progress that they make because they're not going to be able to stick with it. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So you recently had a baby. Yes. Congratulations. Thank you. It's so exciting. And this is your first, right? It's my first. Yep. Oh, congratulations. Thank you so it's, much. It's amazing. We did have a lot of questions um, about pregnancy and breastfeeding safe skincare. Yeah. So can you touch on that a little bit for the audience? Definitely. With pregnancy, there are a few kind of hard rules. And then there's also, but really there's so much gray area in terms of what the hard rules are. I would say that retinoids and, you know, with retinoids, there's oral retinoids and topical retinoids, but we know 100% sure that oral retinoids, which the main example is isotretinoin or Accutane, we know that that can cause birth defects. And so that is a huge no-no. Um, we definitely, you know, you know, anyone who's on Accutane, they're like strictly tested for the pregnancy status. And um, now that there's topical retinoids and there are... Um, there, there are some small studies of certain topical retinoids, mainly like stronger prescription topicals like Tazeratine, otherwise known as Tazerac. And I want to say that there were, there were even some small studies with um, tretinoin too that did show, I mean, and these were like case reports, so nothing huge, but that showed birth defects with topical use. And so we just say to avoid retinoids altogether. So there's the over-the-counter retinoids like retinol and adapalene is now over-the-counter too. And you know, we, those haven't been tested or, you know, we haven't really seen issues with those, but I would just say to be on the safe side to avoid retinoids across the board. Another um, skincare ingredient that we just say to avoid is hydroquinone. That is a prescription ingredient used to help with hyperpigmentation. And then when it comes to acne, there's gray area with some popular ingredients like benzoyl peroxide, um, some people say it's fine. Some people say, oh, above a certain percentage you want to avoid. I'm I'm kind of more in that camp. I say try to stay under 5%. There's also some gray area with salicylic acid, but I would say, you know, the standard percentage out there is 2%, and I would say that that's fine. Um, you know, you don't want to do like chemical peels with higher strengths, salicylic acid. Glycolic acid, also a gray area. I tell that people, I tell people to stay under 10%. Um, so yeah, you want to avoid like those stronger peels and sulfur. We also say to avoid, um, but otherwise we like azelaic acid for acne and uh, there's a topical antibiotic that we prescribe clindamycin. Um, we do that for acne too. And then, um, there's some oral prescriptions that we, that we use a lot for acne, like spironolactin and doxycycline that we also say to avoid. And let's see, I'm trying to think of any other gray areas. Those are, those are the main gray areas that come to mind, but, but you know, your moisturizers, your cleansers, sunscreen, 
um, those are all fine during pregnancy. Now, there's also a little bit of controversy with sunscreen and like the chemical sunscreens, because we know that and there was a big thing that came out with the FDA that chemical sunscreens can get absorbed into the bloodstream, whether that has any effect on the body or on the potentially, you know, developing fetus, um, we can't say. So right now it's, you know, it's considered to be fine to use, but I would just say if you want to be like super safe, because we don't really know for sure, you, I would just say stick with mineral sunscreens. And then for those who are kind of transitioning, I find that um, a lot of moms tend to just kind of take the pregnancy skincare into the breastfeeding space, which is is fair to say, mm-hmm, but there mm-hmm. are some of those ingredients, right, that you can then pick back yes. up um, while breastfeeding. Yes. So I think that's also a great point to bring up. With breastfeeding, um, things are a little bit more lax. So a lot of people are concerned about retinoids during breastfeeding, but one of the biggest issues when using retinoids during pregnancy is the development of certain organs. Presumably once the baby's born, they're healthy, they have their organs. Also like the transmission of retinoids into breast milk is minimal to the point where we don't see significance there. We don't have great studies. So if you wanna play it super safe, I totally respect people wanting to use you know, topical retinoids with, with breastfeeding. What I find sort of interesting is that there are some rare skin conditions are called genodermatoses, these genetic abnormalities with like the epidermis where it's certain, it's, it's a condition called ichthyosis and there's different kinds of ichthyosis, but these babies have like extremely, extremely dry, peely skin. And one of the treatments is, is Accutane. And so like Accutane can be given to newborns. So, so, I mean, obviously that's not ideal, but, but it's just an interesting thought that if you can give an Accutane newborn, you know, Topical tretinoin while breastfeeding is is like nothing compared to that. I do want to say the one skincare ingredient that I would that I would avoid while breastfeeding is hydroquinone, just because that can enter the bloodstream. I, we don't really know what that exactly would do um, for the baby, but I would just say safe to avoid that. Yeah, it's always better safe than sorry. I think yes. I'm sure you get tons of DMs about this question. Oh yeah, a ton. and um, you know I always say it's just. Even if it's probably fine, it's such a short window of time. You know, it's just for your own peace of mind, it's better to just err on the side of caution because if anything does come up, you're always going to wonder, what if I could have done something differently? And while likely you did nothing that could have caused it, it's just better to set yourself up for that from the beginning and just kind of be cautious in in all of your topicals. Yeah, exactly. If your kid doesn't get into Princeton, you don't have to blame yourself, you know? (laughs) Yeah. I used that retinol one time while I was pregnant. And what about um, as our as we have our baby and the baby gets a little bit older? What kind of skincare, if any, is necessary for infants and toddlers? Yeah, I think that when in general, when it comes to skincare, you want to keep things gentle, and you also don't have to, you know, use soaps and cleansers and shampoos every day. And when it comes to bathing, you want to, you know, keep the temperature lukewarm. You don't want it to be scalding hot. Obviously, that's just not good for the baby in general, but, um, but, but yeah, keeping the bath time minimum. And then, like I said, just gentle cleansers, I look for hypoallergenic things. There's some great brands out there. Like CeraVe has a great baby line. Um, I like Aveeno too. And, you know, most kids will do just fine. And moisturization you can do if it's like in the drier months I would say if the baby is prone to dry skin or if the baby has eczema prone skin, then I would be more aggressive about moisturizing. And the best time to do that is immediately after bathing. But yeah, just minimizing harsh soaps and uh, fragrances. And can you touch a little bit on um, sunscreen for our babies and toddlers? Yes. So typically the general rule of thumb is to avoid sunscreen um, before six months of age. So I'm really adamant about like sun protective clothing and hats and babies um, if you are going to be outside. And after that, uh, there are sunscreens out there that are made for babies. But in general, I would just say look for mineral sunscreen. Baby and the, the, the skin of infants and toddlers, kids is more absorbent, I would say. Um, and so... So yeah, so just be a little bit 
more cautious. I would just say just play it safe with mineral sunscreens. Yeah, absolutely. And we had uh, quite a few questions from the audience, and I think a lot of them came from them consuming your content. And one of the requests was to touch a little bit on the skin microbiome health and kind of what we can do to support that. And what is it? What is that for someone who doesn't know? Yes. So we are seeing more and more research coming out about this huge ecosystem of microorganisms that live on our skin and in our gut and how huge of a role that these microorganisms, I mean, billions or trillions of bacteria, fungi, viruses, they all work together and theoretically live in unity in this ecosystem to support our skin health on our immune system, skin immune system, and then in the gut, like our overall immune system. And they, there are so many different like types of species and they're they're all supposed to kind of live together, you know, and play nice in a nice friendly environment. But what happens when we disturb our microbiome, whether it's on our skin or in our gut, uh, for example, like if, if we are killing off a lot of these good pathogens or these good bacteria, the bad players, or we call pathogenic bacteria can sometimes overtake or like yeast that normally, you know, is just fine in the small in a low population can thrive and cause some issues. And um, there are a variety of things that can disturb our microbiome. And I'll, I guess I'll focus more on the skin. So with the skin barrier, there's all these components. There's the microbiome, the oils, the pH. And when they're all in balance, our skin is functioning great. And so when we're disturbing one aspect of it. Like let's say we're using something harsh and we're disturbing the oils that can throw off the other parts of our skin barrier, whether it's the microbiome. And then that can result in issues with our skin barrier, like dryness, irritation, and different things that can affect our microbiome are also like, you know, harsh antibiotics or, you know, antibacterial agents. So harsh soaps, you know, we can see cause more dry skin issues. Is there anything like in, internally that we're doing that could disturb? Like we know that alcohol and nicotine, things like that can disturb our gut microbiome. Do you think they have an effect on our skin microbiome as well? Or it's too soon to tell? It's interesting. The research is showing that that our internal gut health it does play a role with our skin microbiome. And a lot of it can be translated to just, I think it's very complex, but the way that our our gut health is internally affects our immune system. And that immune system is then in contact with our skin and our skin microbiome. And that can potentially throw off our skin microbiome. Right. So it can affect it inadvertently. Yes, inadvertently. But yes, both internal and external factors can affect the skin microbiome. Interesting. And so for your patients who are experiencing some sort of like disturbance in the skin barrier, whether it be like acne or rosacea, do you tend to recommend a probiotic or is that not something that you usually regularly recommend? I do recommend a probiotic. Um, we, I think we still need kind of more research, but I think it's sort of an untapped market. I think, well, people are starting to tap into it, but, but there are a couple of options out there of some probiotics that specifically look at strains that benefit patients with those skin issues with acne. And so, so I would recommend some of those to patients for sure. That's good to hear. Are there any brands that you would recommend for the audience to look into to see if it might be suitable for themselves, maybe keeping skin health top of mind? Because there's so many probiotics, you know, and, and as you said, different strains will target different things. Yes. So yes, the probiotic that I recommend often to patients with acne, especially if, if you know, they don't want to be on prescriptions or as a way to supplement um, their prescription regimen is brand called Serene Skin. And they specifically tested those strains of bacteria. And I think it's helpful for mild to moderate acne. I don't know if it's gonna make a huge difference. There's an interesting skincare line as well called Phyla, P-H-Y-L-A. And I remember hearing a talk from one of the founders, he's a scientist, and was very intrigued by this. And it's, it's like a cleanser, moisturizer, and serum that can that can help relieve severe cases of acne, like cystic acne, which I thought was so interesting. Yeah, because we're trained to think that cystic acne really is requires systemic treatment um, and like oral medicines. But, but it's just really cool that this can drastically change the microbiome on the skin 
and potentially, yeah, get rid of cystic acne. I have a few patients who started this regimen and that I'm waiting to see back. Um, but yeah. That's so interesting. And I think sometimes there's maybe like some taboo on these these potential lines that, you know, microbiome health. And, and we think of all these like buzzy words. And I think we're trained to be very kind of stand back and unsure of these new brands coming out to the market with such... Um, amazing claims, you know, as providers, but also when you think of it from the patient perspective, if they can try something like that first and it helps them, like, why not? Why not try it? You know, if they're, if there's someone who's not interested in, in an oral medication or are trying to avoid it, I think the more tools we have in our toolbox, the better. Totally agree. Yeah. I really work with the patient to find out what their goals are. If they're like, you know, cause, cause what I've noticed is that if they take sort of an alternative route to healing their acne, whether it's changing their diet, doing supplements, it does take longer. But if the if the patient is open to that and they'd rather, you know, kind of take their time to, to really heal their gut and to, you know, change their lifestyle, then yeah, I am all for it. And I would be interested to see too what the kind of relapse rates are in a group of people who take the time to make the lifestyle changes because if it is taking longer and they're doing, you know, all this research and really um, overhauling their entire lifestyle, you would think it might actually stick a little bit longer because you're really changing your lifestyle habits, right? So when you're when you're on medications, a lot of times we say, you know, like for retinoids, you have to kind of be on them indefinitely in order for them to continue to work. And I mean, I love retinoids regardless of acne, but it's just, it's good to think about, you know, I'd love to know maybe one day we'll have that data to see kind of long-term what ends up being the most feasible for patients to incorporate. Yeah, no, I like where you're getting at that because I think I think that long-term, the people who are kind of revamping their health and kind of getting to the root cause, they're having, I think, better long-term issues um, just from what I'm seeing. I see a lot of relapse in patients who, who are on prescription medicine and then they go back to their, you know, whatever they're normally doing. And then it just comes right back. Right. And kind of speaking on this topic, how do you address like your hormonal acne or PCOS patient, you know, knowing that you're using both, you know, Western modalities and also kind of this integrative dermatology as well? What, what's kind of your approach to that patient? Yeah, I, there are a couple of other supplements that I think can be more effective in this setting. For, for people with PCOS, people who have irregular periods, they, overall, they just talk about how their hormones are just don't seem right. And we look at supplements that work on decreasing androgens. So androgens are that family of hormones that include things like testosterone that seem to be kind of out or overpowering the other hormones. So, you know, when we, when we think of hormonal acne, traditionally we think of, you know, acne in adult female. Acne likes to congregate in the beard distribution of the face. I mean, it can really occur anywhere, but that's sort of the tradition, traditional, or that's the most kind of classic example of, you know, adult female acne. A lot of times women can have irregular periods. They notice also a correlation with acne flares in their periods. There's like a cyclical nature to their to their acne. And so things that can help sort of with the androgen aspect are things like um, pumpkin seed oil. And what's interesting, both topical and oral form can be helpful. Um, the t there's a topical form. There's a brand that I like actually on Amazon called Bella Terra. And, you know, when you think oil, oh my gosh, don't use an oil with acne, but it's a wonderful moisturizer that has anti-acne properties. And then the... The supplement that you can take is, yeah, I, I usually tell people to take 2,000 milligrams of pumpkin seed oil at night, and I don't have a specific brand. There's a lot of brands out there. And then another one that I like, especially for people who have PCOS and infertility, is something called Vitex, which is also known as Chaseberry. And then with PCOS, another issue that, that people deal with is, you know, irregular blood sugar, like potentially higher blood sugar, insulin resistance. So there are things like chromium and cinnamon, which can help with that and potentially also help with, you know, acne because that's going to help the PCOS, you know, balance the hormones. And then in turn, that will help the acne. Very interesting. I personally had um, gestational diabetes and had never been aware of any blood sugar problems that I had prior. You know, I've never 
Nothing has ever come up. Um, and, you know, my A1C has always been fine on my normal labs and things like that. But I had it while pregnant. And I did notice that, um, you know, I was able to control it with diet. But I did notice how much better I did as far as, like, the pregnancy breakouts. They kind of went away once I was able to control my blood sugar really well. So I've tried to kind of adopt many of those things into my life now. And it, it was simple things that I just, I guess, didn't think of, like just increasing protein intake and, and you know, like not doing carbs first thing in the morning. Like you could still eat carbs, but make sure you're pairing them with protein and fiber and just things you don't always think about, even when you're eating quote unquote healthy. So I definitely noticed a change in my skin when I um, took that more seriously. So I can see how that, that would be helpful. This podcast is brought to you by, well, me. Skinthusiast.com is your one-stop shop for all things skin and beauty. We have so many blog posts that you could educate yourself on skincare all day long. If you want a deeper dive, I hold your hand through creating a skincare regimen from scratch in my comprehensive skincare guide. And we have the cutest crewnecks for anyone who's in their skin era. If you're a skin enthusiast, you're going to love it here. Head to skinthusiast.com forward slash shop. And for your PCOS patients, are you running certain labs or are you just kind of going off the clinical presentation? I will run labs. Not every dermatologist will do that. A lot of derms will work alongside an OBGYN to, to run labs, but I feel comfortable running labs on patients. Mm -hmm. But I do tell patients that the labs are just one part of the workup. Sometimes they need an ultrasound of their ovaries too. Um, and, and that's where I'll you know, make sure that they also talk to their OBGYN. Yeah. And it's, it's true that they can have the, the syndrome without the cysts, right? And their ovaries. That's right. So that's something mm -hmm. to keep in mind mm -hmm. for patients. And I think, I think now um, people are, are kind of taking control of their health a little bit more, but even five or 10 years ago, I think there was a lot of gray area with PCOS and just, I think we've learned so much um, and we're kind of able to help the patients a lot better that way. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I want to, and you touched on this a little bit in the beginning, but I'd love to kind of hear about some of the Japanese traditions that you use in skincare. And you've talked about it before on your page. And I think it's so fascinating kind of bringing that that culture into your skincare education. And we know it's, you know, one of the cultures that is just incredibly knowledgeable about skincare. So I'd love to hear a little bit about those practices that you incorporate. Yeah, I think one of the overarching themes with Japanese skincare, and I noticed just in Asian beauty in general, is to use ingredients that are gentle on the skin. Like they have like this subtle yet powerful impact, um, but they're still like taking care of the skin, nourishing the microbiome, like, and, and keeping the skin like nourished in general. And so that's, I think, one of the overarching themes. You don't see as many like harsh exfoliating acids or retinoids, things like that. Um, but yeah, one of the one of my favorite ingredients is rice water, uh, and you know, it, it's used now in skincare a lot. I think it's it's fermented, and then the the qualities are even more accentuated in in that fermentation process and used in skincare. But it's one of those things that has just like just all around multiple benefits while also being hydrating and nourishing to the skin. Like it can help with like hyperpigmentation. It can help with just overall hydration. It can help, you know, build uh, the, like the, the hyaluronic acid production in the skin. So that can help with the appearance of fine lines and wrinkles. Um, so that's probably one of my favorite skincare ingredients. Another thing I like about Japanese skincare, and once again, I think this is also in Asian beauty, is just doing things that increase the circulation to the face. So a lot of this will just include like simple massaging of the face. You don't have to use a fancy tool, massaging, patting the skin, doing that. And then I think that in Japanese skincare, I mean, sun protection is a huge thing. And so not only I mean, it's interesting because sunscreen, you know, is more of a newer phenomenon, but I just know like traditionally, you know, a lot of Japanese women would wear like paper umbrellas. They would just do everything they can to, to keep kind of their skin out of the sun. Um, so, yeah. It's really interesting. It just reminded me of a story I heard one time about Coco Chanel and I think... 
I don't know what decade it would have been, but that this the suntan was really not a thing in the U.S. either until she was on some trip in Greece. I heard the story. I don't know if it's true. And she came back with a suntan, and that's like kind of what sparked the desire for tan skin in, in our country. And I just think it's so interesting because, you know, decades ago, as a country, we also were very avoidant of the sun and, and of tanning our skin. But now it's just come, gone completely the other way. Oh, it's yeah. so interesting. So interesting. Yeah, a lot of cultural yeah. um, phenomenons going on. Yeah, very interesting. Um, and while you were just talking, it reminded me of a video of yours that I saw about microcurrent devices. And I kind of wanted to ask your thoughts on that. And do you think that they're beneficial beyond just that immediate um, kind of temporary lifting effect that you might experience? Yes, I do think that there needs to be more research in this area, but I do believe that microcurrent devices have both that short-term and long-term effect on the skin. So I think that even if you don't have anything going on that day, that getting in the practice of using it can have long-term benefits. I mean, I don't think it's anything miraculous. I think that, you know, you want to you know, do the other things that we know for sure helps with skin health and collagen protection and remodeling like sunscreen, retinoids, certain antioxidants like vitamin C. But um, if you if you just want to take things to the next level, you have time and you enjoy it, you have the money to spend on a microcurrent device, I think that it's it's lovely and helpful. I, I personally really enjoy it. Yeah, I do too. And I think there's a balance too of um, recommending these, like I also love at home LED light, things like that, recommending these things that um, I think kind of compound on each other. And if you're consistently using these for years and decades, then I do believe there's a difference, but also, you know, weighing that with the fact that they are a little bit more pricey and not in everyone's budget. So I think kind of the theme is that you can absolutely get beautiful, healthy skin without them. But if you're, if like you said, if you're trying to do everything, then they, there is some validity to, to their um, benefits. Yeah, I love them too. Um, some viewer questions. One of them is, how do you spot quality skincare over quote unquote cash grabs? What's some advice for the audience? Yeah, I think that's I think that's a great question. So, yeah, because not all skincare that's expensive equals good skincare. <laughs> and what the biggest things that go into uh, what makes a high quality skincare product expensive is the research and the studies that go behind that product. So I would say that, that, that a lot of these products will show research on their website. Sometimes it can be deceiving, so you have to be careful. And it, it's, I know, I feel like it, you know, some of these companies can prey on people who, who don't understand how to interpret like scientific studies, but but you want to look for ideally people who've done like clinical trials, randomized placebo controlled clinical trials. That's, that's one of my biggest things, just the studies. Yeah. Cause there are some expensive skincare brands out there that do make great products. Like I would say SkinCeuticals, Elastin, Revision, SkinMedica. And there is a lot of money that goes into the research, but there are, there are so many, you know, products that are accessible and affordable over the counter that are very effective because they are using ingredients that have had a long history, that that have had already a lot of research behind them. Um, they don't necessarily have to be expensive ingredients to manufacture. Um, but yeah, when it comes to deciding where to spend money on skincare, I don't think you need to spend a lot of money on cleansers. I don't think you need to spend a lot of money on moisturizers. I mean, don't get me wrong, there's some really amazing moisturizers out there that are expensive, but you don't have to do that. You also don't have to spend a lot of money on sunscreen. I would say that if you are going to spend money, I would say a good vitamin C, just vitamin C is a very delicate molecule. And I think that if, if it's formulated really well, it can really have a powerful effect on the skin. Uh, so, I, you know, I love SkinCeuticals. Skin Better has a lot of great studies backing their product. And with retinoids, I mean, you can get affordable, you can get affordable retinoid, you can get tretinoin um, as a prescription for a very affordable price. So you don't necessarily have to spend a lot of money. Although I do have to say, if you're sensitive to prescription retinoids, an expensive retinol that I think is 
uh, worth the price is the Skin Better Alpha Ret. Um, it's just an interesting retinoic acid uh, formulation. It's like retinoic acid paired with the gentle glycolic acid, interesting, but it allows the retinoic acid to really get into the skin quickly so that it, it minimizes the irritation. So it's like not sitting on the surface of the skin because that's where it causes irritation. But yeah, and I don't have any affiliations with any of these companies, by the way. It's just, you know, just from what I've seen and experienced as a dermatologist treating patients. Yeah, in general, I would just say to look at the at the studies if, if they can provide them. Yeah, I think, and and I've noticed too, um, especially on TikTok, there's kind of a lot of pushback on brand studies. I think because, I think you know, on one hand, it's a good thing because people are kind of getting smart to the fact that maybe industry-funded studies aren't always as, I guess, as always as robust of data as those who aren't industry-funded or company-funded, but that doesn't mean they're completely in, invalid at, by any means. I think, you know, I always like to remind people, well, no one's going to come along and test this this company's product without, you know, they have to pay for those studies or they're not going to get the study. So I think to completely uh, invalidate a study just because it's funded by the company is wrong. But I also think it's, it's smart to come at it from kind of that smart consumer standpoint. And one thing with products too is I always like to look to see if there are experts online recommending the products because if there's a lot of them and they're kind of um it seems like unbiased reviews i that kind of always encourages me um that there's some validity to the line or to the product and skin better is one i've never tried but i i think every expert i've ever talked to has mentioned it so um it seems like that's a really great option for those who are sensitive to retinoids And speaking of retinoids, one um, viewer question was that she has been using the same 1% retinol for over a year, but now all of a sudden she's experiencing irritation. Can you talk about some reasons that that might be? Yeah, usually when the skin sort of changes or they're reacting to a product that they've always used, there could be something going on internally like hormonal shifts can change the chemistry of your skin. Certain things can make your skin more dry. Certain hormonal shifts can also affect like your skin barrier if there's like less oils. And so there could be that aspect. Um, sometimes like even eating certain foods can like just shift your body's chemistry too. So like if her diet's different or their diet's different. And so there's that. And then could they be doing something different in the rest of their skincare routine? Have you introduced like an exfoliating product? Have you introduced like a cleanser that might be a little bit too harsh for your skin barrier? Um, so there's 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 different aspects and you kind of have to play detective. It's it's annoying. There's there's not a great answer <laughs> or there's not one single answer. You just have to look at yeah what you're putting on your skin, what you're putting in your body, what your body's going through. Um, whether it's hormonal shifts, stress, even stress can change like your skin barrier, which is interesting. And I think, you know, like you mentioned, changing your cleanser, something as simple as changing up your cleanser or your moisturizer can can do a lot more than I think people sometimes realize. I think we think those products are completely benign and they're not going to have any effect on our skin. But we know that, you know, using the wrong cleanser for your skin type or the wrong moisturizer for your skin type, or maybe not making that adjustment as the seasons change or something like that can can have an effect on the products that you're using that you've been tolerating just fine. So even something as simple as you mentioned as a cleanser could could really change the way your skin tolerates things. Um, and there was one specific product question. Someone was asking, what are your thoughts, and you might know this product, you might not, of Vegamore Growth Serum for hair thinning? So I would say most of the studies that we see with, with hair growth serums are with minoxidil. We know that that is effective. I do not know how Vegamore stands with minoxidil, but but some people can be sensitive to minoxidil, whether it's another ingredient like a preservative, propylene glycol, which is in a lot of topical minoxidil products, people can be sensitive to it. But some people can also get side effects too. It's not common, but people can get facial hair from topical minoxidil. Um, that actually happened to me with like the 2%, not even the 5%, like it happened with the 2%. I started growing like a mustache. Really? <laughs> That's so funny. My boyfriend at, no. at the time was like, I'd rather you like not have facial, like not have hair on your head and not have facial hair. Um, I know I was going through like so much stress during residency. So I like, I, I was having a lot of hair loss and using Rogaine during that time. But yeah, so, so there are some side effects. So I think that it's, it's a potential 
potentially helpful alternative. But I, like I said, I can't say how it stands against topical minoxidil. Yeah, it's interesting. There's so many of these like hair growth serums on the market now. And there's just not a lot of data to support many of the ingredients, but it's like in theory, they might help. So it's, it, I think it comes back to like, if you enjoy doing it and it's in your budget, like you said earlier, like it's not going to hurt, but there's, there's not enough data to really say like, it's going to be totally worth it for you. Okay. I wanted to ask you some like rapid fire questions on some common kind of trending viral skincare practices, like just your unfiltered thoughts that come to your mind. And the first one is snail mucin. I am a fan of snail mucin. For the most part, I just think that it's a very lovely humectant. A humectant is something that really draws water into the skin. Snail mucin also has something called glycosaminoglycans, and these are molecules that, you know, that play a huge role with with yes, drawing water. But it can it serves as a matrix for like more hyaluronic acid and collagen to build upon. And so there are, I think, some like anti aging aspects to that too as well. But I think most people use it for like hydration. I was like, it's just a hydrating serum. Now, I think that there are potentially some issues with snail mucin and acne. I've seen people post about it online. I've actually seen it in patients as well. Um, I don't think every person with acne um, is affected by snail mucin. I can't say why some people are affected by it than others, but I would just say just to practice caution if you have acne or acne prone skin. Okay. That's a good tip. I haven't, I hadn't heard that yet. Uh, next one is what are your thoughts on rosemary oil for hair growth? There is a study that compared rosemary oil to, I believe 2% minoxidil and showed that it was just as effective. So if you are having side effects to minoxidil, I think that I think that it's a great, you know, topical ingredient to use. Now, I mean, you know, I, I typically recommend 5% minoxidil to patients. So, you know, it doesn't stand against that. But I think it's an easy thing to incorporate. Like, I think it could be like just a thing that you could supplement with your minoxidil, like something that you could like, you know, wash your hair with. Like you could, you know, I tell people sometimes you could add a few drops to the shampoo in your hand and massage it into your scalp um, or... Yeah, or eating, even adding um, a few drops into like a spray bottle and spraying it onto your scalp too. Um, I don't think it hurts to add to your regimen. So what are your thoughts on lash serums with prostaglandin analogs, which are, you know, the most common ones on the market, arguably the most effective ones, but there are some side effects. What are your thoughts on those? In general, I like them. <laughs> um, but, but yeah, I think that there's a few potential, you know, there's a few issues that we see with them. One of them, I think the most common is like irritation on the eyelids, redness, hyperpigmentation. And the other one that I think is getting a little bit more attention is periorbital atrophy. And it's interesting because that can sometimes benefit some people. Some people will call it like a chemical blepharoplasty and it, it, it can help with people with like heavy eyelids. But unfortunately, in some people, it can ca cause more hollowing under the eyes and volume loss. So it can contribute to dark circles. It's not common, but it is it is a potential side effect. And um, it's something that um, I think dermatologists are becoming more aware of. But I think that they're very effective. So it's, it's a balance. And then, you know, there's this, this very, very low risk of if you have like hazel eyes or green eyes, maybe blue eyes, but more so hazel eyes, um, that it can increase like pigment in your iris, uh, like cause, cause like brown specks and that's permanent. So that's not fun, but the risk is so low. I mean, the risk is already so low because, you know, the, these medicines were used as, uh, like glaucoma eye drops and the risk was so low with that. And they were literally putting the, the medicine straight onto their eyeball, but it's just something to be aware of because it is a permanent side effect. So to wrap up a few questions, number one, what is your holy grail skin products? If you could only use one skincare product for the rest of your life, what would it be? It would be sunscreen. And I don't have a specific actual sunscreen, but uh, yeah, it would be sunscreen because not only, I mean, it doesn't seem that, you know, fancy or sexy when you say sunscreen, but it can help delay the aging process and when you are actually using it, you're giving your skin cells a chance to take a nap. When your skin cells are able to rest and recover, they can work better to help repair 
damage that you might have had too. So it is protective and preventative, but it's also, it's also active too. Um, so just, yeah, that's why I'm a fan. I love that point of view. That's that I haven't really heard anyone say it that way before. I love that. And what is your most underrated skin tip? Maybe something that we could be doing easily at home that we're kind of all sleeping on. This one is okay. So one of the most common complaints that I get from patients and these are patients and they're, you know, fifties, sixties, and seventies is, is all the brown spots on their forearms, all the bruises that they get on their forearms. They're like these like splotches called ecchymoses. It's like these things like red blood splotches, the type of bruise. And a lot of it is just accumulation from not protecting their forearms and the tops of their hands, just driving in the car for decades of their life or being outside. People are good about People are better about protecting their face with hats, sunscreen, but they forget about their forearms. And I would just say an easy thing that can save you headache later on in life is to cover your arms when you're driving, like keep a spare hoodie in the car. It would be great if it had UPF fabric, like um, so, so fabric that actually can protect your skin from UV rays. There's so many like great options that are lightweight out there. There's also some nice like cute uh, arm gloves that that are out there like skinny confidential has a cute one so i just think that it's just easy and even though you're not going to really see the benefit immediately you will thank yourself i mean i can't tell you if how many patients complain about their forearms um at that age so um so you will thank yourself later that's a good one and very last question if you could tell your younger self one thing what would it be uh don't use a tanning bed don't use the tanning bed, which I, I was a victim. Um, fortunately not, not a whole bunch, but I used, I used it a number of times before like junior prom and senior prom. And even just using it once just exponentially increases your risk for skin cancer. And I'm sure like it also contributed to like some hyperpigmentation issues that I've had to deal with too. So yes. (laughs) So many, so I did too. And I, I've joked before, like I've actually stayed awake thinking about it. Like even just like, you know, there's so much risk with the, the, your eyes, your skin, like you said, skin cancer. It's just, uh, could have saved myself a lot of headache by not doing that. Mm-hmm, <laughs> mm-hmm. Great Definitely. tips. Like, I actually can't believe they're still legal. I think it's kind of crazy. I know. Agree. Literal carcinogen. <laughs> yeah. Doesn't make any sense. Yeah. But on that note, thank you so much for coming on the show and yes. just so much insight that I hadn't even thought of before. So I know that the audience is going to really appreciate it. So thank you for taking the time, especially from your new baby. We really appreciate you being with us for this hour. Well, thank you so much for thinking about me and inviting me. I really enjoyed this. Thank you, Dr. Mamina, for coming on the podcast and sharing your unique insight. I can already think of a few changes I'm going to make to my own routine and my recommendations for patients. As always, if you found this episode valuable, please rate and review the show and let me know in your review who you'd like to hear from next. Each week, I pick a couple of reviews to send a little skin goodie box to just as a little thank you. I'll talk to you next week, skin enthusiasts. Thank you.